Hi, it's Fraser here. And before we get into this week's Spike podcast, I just wanted to let you know about a fantastic event we're organizing. Lionel Shriver will be joining Brendan O'Neill live for a special recording of his podcast next week. Lionel and Brendan will be live on Zoom on October the 11th at 7pm, and they'll be taking your questions too. This event is free, but it's exclusive to Spike supporters. So if you're a Spike supporter, why not sign up now via the Spike supporters hub on the Spike website? If you're not a Spike supporter yet, then why not sign up today? You can sign up for as little as £5 a month or £50 a year, and you can get access to this event, plus a whole load of other supporter perks. You can sign up today by going to spikes-online.com forward slash supporters. That's spikes-online.com forward slash supporters. Don't miss Lionel Shriver and Brendan O'Neill live on Tuesday, the 11th of October at 7pm. See you there. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And no Ella Whelan this week, and not for a while, in fact, as she's on maternity leave. But in her place, we're delighted to welcome friend of the show and spiked columnist, Anaya Falarin Eman. Hi. Coming up on today's show, the implosion of the Tories, the protests in Iran, and Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter is back on. So the Conservative Party has had its conference this week. Obviously, there's been a lot more attention paid to what's going outside the conference room, particularly in the markets, and perhaps even more shockingly in the polls, where we've seen, you know, some 33-point leads for Labour, um, Liz Truss's personal popularity tanking. I mean, Tom, what have you made of this? I think the prevailing sense you get is of a historic opportunity that's been well and truly squandered. Mm. I think it's fair to say, I mean... It does feel like the stench of death is overwhelming. I mean, listening to Liz Truss's speech, it's all, you, the words almost kind of float past you, um, not just because they're a little bit odd and strangely delivered in places, but also because of the fact that the whole project feels very much spent. Um, that brief period in which they really sort of channeled that Brexity energy into something that felt genuinely quite interesting and potentially could do the unthinkable and give them a, maybe a fifth term in office has gone. They, you know, they've reverted to this sort of effigy of Margaret Thatcher rendered in damp flannel. It's a really mm. unattractive and as we've noticed in these polls, not democratically supported kind of program. You know, I think Matt Goodwin was pointing this out recently that that kind of quote unquote liberal lever or neoliberal <laughs> lever, however yeah. you want to put it, version of Brexit has never been more even kind of charitably like 20% of the electorate. And yet mm. it now runs the country without a democratic mandate. And aside from the kind of exhaustion of the, of the Tories at this point, they've been in office for a long time and they have been battered by their own kind of failures and scandals, is also a good reminder of what happens when you take voters for granted. Yeah, um, More than anything else, I think that's the prevailing message at this point. Yeah, because it's, you know, Liz Truss, not only did she seek a kind of democratic mandate from the electorate after changing the leadership. She's trying to change the direction of economic policy without, you know, talking to the public, without even explaining a lot of her ideas to the public. No, I think that that is a, a kind of key fundamental point. It's not that the public are averse to experimentation and trying new things. It's the 
way in which they've been excluded from the conversation was such a uh, different direction to the historic mandate that was handed to the Conservatives in 2019. And I think it does really reveal just the kind of dearth of talent and dearth of ideas amongst the political class, because the mandate that was given, I mean, it could not really have been more clear cut. I mean, an 80 seat majority, uh, as uh, Tom mentioned, really harnessing the opportunities of Brexit and using it to transform the country, particularly parts of the country that had been uh, neglected, so to speak, for for decades. And and, and that has been, unfortunately, squandered. And I think it is uh, being revealed increasingly in the polls. And I think, you know, Liz Truss is not a stupid woman. I mean, she came in there with her eyes open. She knew that she was, um, there was very high expectations. She was inheriting a very challenging situation around uh, the pandemic and and the energy crisis. And she thought that she could kind of go back to the same, you know, Tory uh, psychodrama and and all the simple things that they uh, often get themselves into without going to the public. And Mm. I just think that that was incredibly, incredibly naive. And, And Tom, it's interesting looking at some of the polls that it is in those red wall seats mm. where um, Liz Truss seems to be failing even even worse than in general terms. No, completely. And, you know, these things might settle down. I think there's a tendency to kind of look at what's going on at the moment, yeah. uh, a, a moment of kind of profound media hysteria in relation mm. to what happened in the past week, um, as well as, let's face it, a kind of rubbing of hands that the Tory era is over and to kind of overstate where we are. But it does seem like the damage has been badly done. I mean, Boris Johnson really damaged his own standing in yeah. a lot of those constituencies anyway. But the kind of polling deficits you're talking about now are crazy. I mean, Liz Truss just across the country is now more unpopular than Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson, who are two very divisive figures. Um, and I think that even though we might say that she's in some respects the kind of victim of events, it doesn't get away from the fact that what those voters signed up to, this is in many respects the kind of polar opposite mm, yeah. of it. Mm. Um, in so far as Boris Johnson's great insight, aside from recognising that Brexit had to be implemented, and that was a pretty important thing, was also that that part of the electorate, which was up for grabs, which had been ignored for so long, might have had some kind of kinship with the Conservatives on Brexit, on certain yeah. cultural culture war issues and so on, that they weren't Thatcherites. You know, these are parts of the country in which Thatcher is still a, an epithet to a certain extent. Mm. So um, to kind of not only just revert back to this, but to do so, as I was saying, with no kind of argument whatsoever, mm. with no attempt to lay out your programme, it was, of course, going to doom them to failure. And I, th- I think this is something which I, I'm amazed that they didn't really see this coming in that respect. Aren't you just part of the anti-growth coalition by saying <laughs> Who isn't part of the anti-growth coalition? That's it seems to be everyone. Yeah. I think that's the worst, <laughs> most cumbersome coinage that <laughs> but, but, but it's also just very bizarre i mean i'm i'm very pro growth we mm-hmm. want you know more development more prosperity across the country but the idea that there is this kind of very narrow way to to pursue that and yeah. if you don't support that then you're you know vindictive against list trust i just don't think is very true but i also just worry about the impact this is going to have on our democracy more broadly mm-hmm. you know we mentioned uh, the, the red war who had you know taken an opportunity many people for the first time in a generation to vote the Conservatives and it hasn't produced anywhere near the kinds of uh, hopes that people uh, wanted. And now Labour are increasing in the polls, not because they have this kind of radical transformative programme, yeah, yeah. which means we have, we all want to really support them just because the options are so, you know, bad really. And it mm. has become a kind of trite point or the lesser of two evils, but actually, you know, it is a bad sign for our democracy. Well, people deserve deserve better than that, Absolutely. don't they? Yeah. And, and a lot of people will go back to not voting. Yeah. That's the mm. other thing. I mean, there's mm. a lot of talk about the kind of people who lent their votes to the Conservatives now moving back towards the Labour Party. I'm sure that's true in part. I mean, I think we're in a very volatile environment and um, that kind of switching is going to be a part of the political landscape for a long time, I think. Um, 
which is why you can't take people for granted. But also, this, the, the thing that really made the difference, both with the Brexit revolt and then the Boris Johnson election, was people who, during the kind of tail end of the new Labour years, stopped voting. Yeah. You know, they realised that politics was no longer speaking to them almost explicitly. It was all about chasing the sort of, you know, middle classes and all the rest of it. Um, and they checked out and mm. then they slowly kind of reappeared. They started voting for UKIP, they voted for Brexit, and then many of them ended up voting Tory in 2019 or some of them 2017. And it's those people who, in my view, quite likely to just fall off the map again, yeah. which, is which is a really bad thing. The great thing about that whole process was that those voters made themselves matter and those areas made themselves matter. I mean, you, with Keir Starmer, you see that you recognise he has to respond to this in some way, shape or form, but in quite a tokenistic fashion, I think mm. it's fair to say. Mm. Is there anything Liz Truss can do? Is she just doomed, do you think, Anaya? You know, uh, that that is an interesting question because whilst, you know, I'm I'm very critical of how the last few weeks have gone, at the end of the day, a few months ago, you know, Boris Johnson was uh, the Prime Minister and things do seem to change. And I do think that there are a lot of moving parts. And I mean, her idea is that it's kind of short-term pain for long-term gain and that yeah. we're going to reap the benefits of a lot of these tough decisions, so to speak, <laughs> <laughs> that are being made You'll now. Enjoy the, the harsh medicine. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which <laughs> is like patronising. Yeah. But um, I think that we, it remains to be seen whether that will be the case, but it seems incredibly unlikely for a Prime Minister and a Chancellor who, frankly, aren't very known to the public yeah. and what they do know seems that they don't really like <laughs> to be able to turn that around um, within the next year and a half. I mean, I've heard from some conservatives that what they're hoping is even if she can at least turn it around to an extent where the defeat isn't so disastrous so they're not relegated mm -hmm. to the fringes for the best part of, you know, a decade and a half. Yeah. But um, that's not really good enough, is it? High hopes indeed. And exactly. the, the breakdown of the Tory party as well was so fascinating. I mean, yeah. you saw it at this conference as well where you had even cabinet ministers just sort of freelancing, you know, mm -hmm. whether it was um, Penny Morden on the question of whether or not you know, the uh, benefits should rise in line with inflation. Or on the other side, you know, Swella Braverman talking about how dropping the U-turn, you know, the U-turn was essentially a coup yeah. and that if anything, she wanted migration down to the tens of thousands, which certainly grates against the more sort of liberal approach that Liz Truss wants to take. Um, you're really struck by the fact that this, this party is so hollowed out. I mean, mm. it has so little kind of coherence. Every, mem every member of parliament is almost like a party of one jostling for position. And obviously they're in, it's, in, it's, a, it's a government which is, feels like it's in its dying days and all sorts of crazy things will happen naturally. But I think it does speak to the fact that um, these parties, because they're not kind of rooted in a particular constituency in society, even the Tory party very given to infighting is even more given to infighting. There's yeah. nothing kind of cohering it. And the thing that was kind of offered to them that might give it that coherence, which is this new base, this new project, this mm -hmm. new kind of um, direction in which they were taking the country, it was only ever really embraced in a transactional fashion by many of them. They thought Boris Johnson can win us the election. A lot yeah. of them didn't really necessarily mm -hmm. believe in it. A lot of them felt quite uncomfortable, I think, with these voters that they found themselves <laughs> lumbered with. And all of that's now coming out in the wash, I think. And it's just going to get even messier, it feels like, from here. <laughs> So let's talk about the protests in Iran. We've had several weeks of protests now. Um, over 130 people have been killed in the process, over 1,500 arrests. Tom, this is now a lot bigger than just the hijab when it started, isn't it? Yeah, I think from quite early on, actually, you saw that this morphed into a general sort of anti-regime sentiment. You know, mm. you would see, obviously, the um, the slogan of the protest being um, women or woman, depending on how you translate it, life, freedom, this kind of, originally a kind of Kurdish liberation slogan, which has been repeated in Farsi across the country, very much focused on the kind of question of the hijab. 
but also deaf to dictator and this kind of rumbling yeah. discontent which has been going on sort of from late 2017 onwards where you've had a series of protests. You've had the kind of anti-hijab movement flaring up from time to time, but also just general um, rejection of the regime um, in the context of spiralling prices and, again, people feeling like they've got no particular future and the sense in which the elites have just, they're becoming more authoritarian at precisely the same time that they're failing them on every conceivable measure yeah. and just things getting towards breaking point. That being said, you know, obviously we can't, it's impossible to underplay the role of those anti-hijab protesters cool. and also the symbolism of it i think it's quite important mm. i mean mm. the ayatollah you know the, the founder of the republic the islamic republic said that you know if this revolution achieves nothing other than um making women wear the hijab then we've then it'll have been a success mm. because it's it's symbolism as the kind of the imposition of um the regime on people's lives can't be understated i think you know there's stories about after the revolution people going out on the streets supporters of the regime handing out these gift wrapped headscarves you know yeah. so the symbolism of it i think is really crucial but as you say it's gotten much bigger than that particular issue at this point and uh, and i you know the fact that the hijab is associated with islam to many people does that make it what do you think that's made it trickier for people in the west to talk about it in like a forthright way to to almost fully back these protests I think that that is uh, possibly true. I mean, what has kind of transpired over the last few weeks has just been a demonstration of extraordinary uh, bravery and courage. And it is really remarkable and throws, you know, into sharp relief a lot of the debates that we're having here around freedom mm. um, and so on. And I think that there are very few kind of international uh, issues that are quite clear cut moral issues. You know, these women are effectively, you know, fighting for their rights to be treated with dignity and, yeah. and basic humanity. And it's also been amazing to see many men um, mm. joining the protests as well. And the fact that there has been this uh, reluctance um, or equivocation amongst a lot of the um, commentary at, um, within Western societies has been really striking. And I do think it is to do with, um, uh, Islam and the kind of sensitivity um, around discussing issues like that. But this to me is a clear cut issue of yeah. solidarity um, and women's rights and they deserve to get as much international support um, as possible. And I've seen some people on social media try and downplay it by comparing it to France and their, mm -hmm. you know, anti-Burqa um, laws, essentially, mm -hmm. which are nothing like this kind of imposition. I mean, Tom, what have you made of that? No, exactly. I think there's, there's a lack of recognition of how oppressive this environment is mm. and also how much more oppressive it's gotten in recent years yeah. you know i mean the sort of islamist regime in iran um is of a very kind of you know despite its sort of traditionalist posture it's, a, it's a, of a very kind of modern ilk you know mm. in many respects and it's been getting more and more authoritarian in recent years it was only in like 2005 that the morality police who enforced these um, dress codes very strictly was enforced um since the new president came in last year we sort of triumphed in a rigged election um, has made a kind of point of really enforcing this. And back in August, they published like a 115-page document laying out the particular policy. It's really, really extreme. Mm. Um, and as a result of that renewed clampdown, you're seeing things happen like what happened to Masa Amini, which was that um, not only is this kind of day-to-day -day oppressive, but also people's lives hang in the balance as a consequence of this. Yeah. And I think it's just moments like this do kind of remind you that whilst the West has its problems with freedom and all the rest of it. Um, and we are in a situation where these protests almost put us to shame insofar as we're so preoccupied with, mm. or at least our elites are, with the downsides of freedom. Mm. Freedom's being eroded, women's rights being eroded as well, which is in, in a kind of woke fashion, which we talk a lot about. Is It is still the kind of air we breathe. And mm. as soon as it's taken away, how 
stultifying and suffocating that is, you know, mm. and you're seeing that kind of visceral reaction to it now. The question is what happens from here, yeah. of course, um, which is very uncertain. There's fears you get a repeat of what happened in 2019 when like one and a half thousand people were killed in the midst of those fuel price protests. But at the same time, you can't get away from the moral force of this particular moment. It's really quite powerful. Yeah, I just, uh, I don't want to make a kind of typical cultural point, but I do think it does put these things into perspective. Yeah. You know, when you uh, see women you know, advocating and, and risking their lives, quite frankly, uh, for basic um, dignity and the discussions around women um, within our societies are, you know, preoccupied with um, some of the most trivial things to even, you know, contesting the definition of woman, yeah. you know, as a whole. And I do think that that means that a lot of the discussion has been hollowed out, that many activists don't have the ability to really articulate a defense of freedom mm. and democracy and kind of female dignity because the they language can't. has been so yeah. confused they over the last decade. can't say what a woman is no, in, exactly. in straight terms, yeah. I, I suppose that the one thing that concerns me going forward is, is the thing that has done it for a lot of sort of uprisings that we've seen in recent years, particularly since the lesson of the Arab Spring, I think, which is that one of the things that makes these protests so powerful is also the thing that makes it so vulnerable insofar yeah. as it is, it's really kind of sudden, it will erupt over social media, fueled by social media, you'll see it spring up in all kinds of cities at once because of how quickly that, you mm. know, a kind of a slogan or a message can get around and all the rest of it. But that quite self-consciously sort of leaderless, mm. um, social media driven mm. sort of protest movement it has time and again sort of failed to be able to be durable enough, yeah. have that kind of sense of structure, have that sense of ideological coherence, which mm. allows for them to actually advance on their particular aims, which in this case, in terms of things people are chanting and saying, is nothing short of overturning the Islamic regime. And that's one thing which is you just hope that the, those mm. kind of lessons of recent history are going to be learned at some point. But that, I don't think that should dampen anyone's enthusiasm for what's going on because, you know, you never know when things are really, when history is really going to be made, if you like, and we should all be hopeful that it does in this case. Before we get into the next section of the Spiked podcast, I just wanted to let you know about another exciting event. The Battle of Ideas is taking place on the 15th and 16th of October, and Spiked is going to be there. If you don't know about the Battle of Ideas, it's an unmissable event. It's all about debate, politics. It's got free speech at the heart of it. It brings together speakers from across the political spectrum, speakers you'll know and recognise and love. And it has such a huge range of topics that you'll be able to debate and really get stuck in with because audience participation is a really huge aspect of the festival. And on Saturday, we'll be doing a live edition of this podcast with me, Tom Slater, special guests Inaya Follerin Iman, Paul Embury and Andrew Doyle. So don't miss it. Elsewhere in the festival, I'll be speaking on identity politics, Tom will be speaking on populism, and there'll be loads of your favourite Spike writers speaking across a whole range of subjects. Plus, if you're a Spike supporter, you can get a discounted ticket. Just log in to the supporters hub on the Spiked website. For everyone else, go straight to the Battle of Ideas website, which is battleofideas.org.uk. That's one word, battleofideas.org.uk. See you there. So Elon Musk's bid to buy Twitter is back on. $44 billion he has offered to buy the social media site and they have accepted. Now, you know, there's been wobbles before, concerns about fake accounts and things mm. like that. But assuming it goes through, Tom, this is potentially some okay, goodish news. 
Yeah, <laughs> in a guarded way. I mean, I don't think anyone should expect Elon Musk to be the sort of saviour of online freedom. Yeah. But I think in terms of the the stink that he's caused by even trying to do this has flushed out the problem as mm. far as all these people off, you know, at Twitter saying they're going to resign en masse and horrified at the prospect of it becoming basically as free as it was in about 2015, which yeah. seems to be about the extent of his ambitions, really. <laughs> you know, get Trump back on there, yeah. calm down on the censorship, that kind of thing. The uh, the pearl clutching that that has unleashed has been um, quite instructive, and I think even just sort of mix you know just mixing things up in that space could be potentially quite interesting. I don't want the state of online freedom to just rest on which billionaire owes what. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I think in that limited sense, it's something to to celebrate definitely. I, th- I think you're you're right. Flushing flushing the people out was a was a mm. you know a good thing in and of itself. You know, to hear people say that they think free speech or even just slightly more free speech means the arrival of white supremacy, for instance, as, as many people said, is just, yeah. you know, shows you where we're at at least. Yeah. I mean, I definitely do think going forward, we perhaps do need to seriously explore more democratic uh, ways of, of, of running uh, many mm. of these companies, just because as Elon Musk has admitted himself, they do often and increasingly function as a form of public square. I mean, I think it's open for discussion, debate, what that looks like going forward. But if we are going to have one billionaire running it, we would, I assume, prefer to have somebody uh, that is more on the free speech side. And I think it is really telling the reaction that we've received um, to the fact that someone is just making basic free speech arguments. Um, And it really does reveal that many of the um, more conservative concerns that uh, it was biased or is biased against them in terms of the way that different voices are censored and so on. And many people are seemingly are fearful of the fact that, you know, their views won't be um, prioritised in yeah. the public debate unfairly. I mean, the only thing I would have sympathy with, I mean, I do remember a few years ago, you know, looking at figures like Hillary Clinton's mentions and it was all a bunch of QAnon people basically <laughs> accusing her of being a Satanist. I, mean, I, can, I can imagine... Those were the three days. Yeah. <laughs> I do think that that, that is a, might be a bit irritating for their part. But I mean, he does talk about the fact that he wants to get rid of bots and all mm-hmm. these kinds of things. So maybe... Um, Maybe that's something that I have a bit of sympathy for, for for those people. But overall, I think it's a good thing if we want to have more free speech. I think that's one thing which has happened time and again, which is um, people where they could just focus on maybe improving the user experience. Yeah. <laughs> it becomes a conversation about who should we ban in all circumstances exactly. yeah, yeah. and all the rest of it. It's like a lot of the kind of trolling campaigns that happen, you know, just looking at them and they're weird, you know, always got eight digits or whatever yeah. it's handles. These yeah. are not real people most yeah. of the time. That's yeah. why you should just block them and ignore them in most cases, <laughs> regardless of the sort of bile that they're so but that has been a big part of the problem i think is that um people it's all just because of the way in which twitter set up it's very easy to be confronted by that kind of stuff Mm. it's very easy to be affronted by that kind of stuff and then demand that as a consequence everyone you dislike should be kicked off of it and the world is going to hell in a handcart as Mm. a consequence so you know it's not to say that things shouldn't be improved and all the rest of it but it you know just it can't be in this situation in which a handful of people, particularly because a lot of these companies act in concert. That's why the Mustang yeah. is kind of interesting because it would disrupt that to a little ex- to a certain extent. Yeah, usually if you're banned on Twitter, you're banned on Facebook. Yeah, that and more recently banned happens. on bloody PayPal too. Exactly, you know? and I- that would disrupt that, which would be quite interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, it would be very interesting to see how far their kind of libertarian defence goes because they were all saying, "Oh, well, you know, you can just." make your own social media company or whatever but you know now that elon musk is taking over surely they should be happy about it's following the same logic the the left-wing defense of property rights that always comes out whenever you say there should be more free speech on social media (laughs) i mean yeah it it does expose that the fragility of that kind of devil's bargain that the left made 
what if one you don't like takes over? Yeah. <laughs> and this is what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.